We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm your host Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is Yulia Barbello, a Russian-American psychiatrist and writer who is deeply influenced by Jungian archetypes. Julia, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time now. Thank you, Jared. Wonderful to be here with you. We first met on one of our writing groups online where you shared an interesting quandary with the, the group. You, you wanted to write under a pen name, and I started our conversation by asking you why. Uh, yes, yes. Um, I um, After a lot of uh, thought and doubt, I decided that I will have to use the uh, pen name for the writing. And the reason, as I told you, Jared, the reason was rather a little bit traumatic for me. The, the, way, um, the way it worked out with, with, the, with the pen name is that when I shared some of my writing with the acquaintances and one friend in particular, I had a reaction that was very dramatic and uh, led up to us... Uh, breaking up our friendship. I was told that I'm an um, emanation of hell. And <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes, yes. I didn't know that. It didn't occur to me that that's what I am. But apparently she perceived me as such and I was an emanation of hell and I wasn't really a safe um, sort of human being to be around. And Do you say you can only know yourself through other people? <laughs> right, like you do, you do, like you, you I never suspected um, such a thing of myself, but apparently it was. And so um, the, re you know, the, the friendship broke up and it was very sad and I was felt very rejected. But at the same time, you know, that gave me an idea that some people may be not ready to hear things I want to say, you know, in a sort of a creative and accepting way. Mm. And then there was a few other incidents as less dramatic, but people tend to be very frightened when you start talking about things that are dark and uh, maybe in disagreement with their beliefs that they had held so deeply th throughout their lifetime, especially when it comes about you know magic and religion. Even though I write about it in a in the archetypal sense, not literally, really, never, never write about those things literally, but some people seem to be unable to abstract in, in that way and take things very, very literally and accuse me of being um, a practitioner of a black magic. And it was also very unpleasant, <laughs> as you imagine. <laughs> this is fascinating to me. I mean, we, we both share a fair family heritage in parts of Russia, and there are long-standing traditions of sorcery and deep folklore that is, I would say, valenced almost by living in dark and cold times. Yeah, that's true. I think part of what endeared me to your work, both the sample you shared and to your experience, is that we both started telling stories as children. Yeah, yeah. Although your particular, I suppose, origin story to this, I found incredibly fascinating, just how you described it to me. Can you kind of paint us, the audience, and me a picture of what it was like those first few times you where you where you shared these stories and how you went about telling them. Right, right. Um, well, a lot of I think a lot of writers start writing in a way when you know in a young childhood, but in my case, I wasn't really writing. I had a knack for I guess oral <laughs> storytelling as a child. I had an incredible amount of fun telling my peers, the little kids in the neighborhood, telling them stories that um, I invented myself, but I was, I was presenting them as if it really happened. And I really, really went to this exotic land over the summer and I really visited those places and I really met these people and this is what happened to me. 
and we were sitting, you know, a lot of it happened in the summer. In those years, what, 20, 25 years ago, oh, about 20, 30, 35 years ago. <laughs> we'll keep it at 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much older than, than I realized, I guess. Um, so, yeah, in those years, it, you know, summer, we didn't have television. There were no computers. And that's what we did, kids. We just sit in some bench in some corner of some neighborhood. And we would just entertain each other by telling stories. And I developed really, really um, great taste to it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And the kids were sitting around. It was getting dark. And it was, you know, all these fantasies are coming up. And I'm telling them the stories. And they, they, they were trying to, to catch me on a lie. I don't think they never <laughs> bought it entirely. So there was this but quite a bit of this. Back. Right. There was this quite a bit of this interrogation. They would, oh, really? And then, you know, and then what happened? And, and they were trying to catch me on a lie. <laughs> We had a great deal playing this, like, you know. Are you familiar with the American tradition of tall tales? Like the, the tall tales. Yeah, the tall yeah. tales. Yeah, yeah. Where tall effectively, tales. the interrogation is part of the storytelling itself, so that you kind of prompt the, the teller into adding more detail or richness to the story. Oh, to wow. see where it comes next. And there's always usually that kind of same end to it, right? We all know Johnny Appleseed or Paul Bunyan, per se, as they, as they exist in the folklore. But the uh -huh. particulars of the story can vary by the teller. Wow, you know, I did know that detail, actually. But it seems like what we were doing as kids, sort of naturally. That's how I started. And then it was really, really amazing to, to just, ah, beautiful time. We just hear the voice of my own voice, which mm. sort of was really not quite like my own sometimes, and just floating around and sort of creating this atmosphere of suspense. And you made props too, do I think you were Yeah, I did. <laughs> so was yeah. this supposed to be proof of places you had been or right. samples of things yes, you were taking back? Yes, exactly. I were, you know, I had a, this little gazebo. I, you know, this abandoned gazebo somewhere in the neighborhood. It was overgrown with ivy. Mm. It was dark inside. It was moist and always, and it smelled like cat. And it was my 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 little studio. So I would run there and I would make these props. I I started with maps. <laughs> I had a, <laughs> I created these like antique maps. They were these lands and strange writings, and I had to burn them pieces of it so that it looked and just you know smear it with dirt and blood. <laughs> <laughs> Yours or someone else's? Mine, mine. Okay, you know, I would you know just drop. <laughs> so that was um, that. I enjoyed it so much, and then I would present it to my you know my friends like a prove that see i've really been there <laughs> looking back what do you think you were hoping to achieve by that what were you looking for out of doing that i you know i had a desire to to see and experience other worlds i think i had a feeling that you know the the world which we, in which we lived wasn't all there was and i really wanted to see other imagine, I guess, other worlds, other people, how can it be differently and to experience that sense of excitement for once. And then there was a moment that's, you know, after that, when I've reflected back, I think there was this enormous desire to experience the freedom of the mind, mm. freedom of imagination that to just take you anywhere in the world and beyond. And this lack of constraint and the freedom of it. I think that was my main motivation. Thinking back, of course, at that time, I didn't think like that. But. There was just kind of the joy of the experience itself. Oh, absolutely. It's pure joy, just the flight of imagination, unconstrained, like a bird, free in the sky. And you, you illustrated these stories too, right, in Russian? I have. Uh, well, Right. I have illustrated the, the one that I wrote, you know, as an adult, that's, that's where I spent most time illustrating and really got into mm -hmm. that idea of bringing image to the word, connecting word and image. I think that's kind of a good place to bring into the conversation the fact that you write in English. It's your second, third language? Technically third, but... Uh, First language was Russian, second was Ukrainian, which I almost don't remember. So English is sort of third, but came up, you know, to be the 
the second, I guess. Was Ukrainian family or was that part of the region you were in? I, I grew up in the eastern part of Ukraine with okay. a very heavy Russian influence. So the family and everybody else, we spoke mainly Russian, but Ukrainian was a state language. So mm. we all had to learn it and read some Ukrainian literature and, and memorize poems. And some people who would come to the town from uh, further, more rural areas, they would speak Ukrainian and we would speak with them. But um, yeah, mainly it was Russian for me. When you told your tales, which languages did you use? Russian. Mm. Yeah. It actually is a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a special kind of Russian dialect that developed over the years by mixing all these languages together in that area. But it's Russian. There's a kind of syncretic element to it. For, for a moment, I was, think, I was thinking in terms of, I know in French, for instance, there's a literary tense itself, a way of telling stories and how you conjugate the verbs too that is only right. within that genre. But this this idea of writing in a foreign language, I find fascinating because I know in my work, other languages I'm familiar with, do, they do creep in. People speak them or native speakers of them and that thought process colors how they speak and think. But this actual act of writing in another language and trying to take what is in your imagination and transcribe it, translate it. I know. It was an undertaking that I didn't think I would be able to pull, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 the desire to write was stronger. And when you want something so much, you, you kind of do everything you can and cannot to get there. And um, it was an interesting, you know, first, of course, you have to learn you know, language, just basics of it. And over time, I think I'd been here for in the United States for maybe 15 or 20 years when I had, um, you know, felt confident enough that I can at least begin writing. I want to share this phrase. Sure. You, I want this piece you wrote in the, uh, the notes you, you sent to me. Although we write in English, the native language doesn't go away, but sits back there behind the scenes, overseeing the whole thing, sometimes teasing you or making fun of your struggle, and always finding its secret passages in every word you write. Yeah, yeah, that is true, Jared. That is true. And it's, um, it's, it's like there's two storyteller, two people sitting in your head, and the one that is up on the front, which is an English language, is informed very much by the, you know, by the language structure mm -hmm. of the Russian, sort of more archaic in me, um, background. The languages make you, the way the, in the language that you speak makes you think differently, you see? The uh, Russian, for instance, um, language makes you think in a very convoluted and broad way, like sort of broad strokes and convoluted and nuanced, but not very clear kind of way. <laughs> There's a walkabout to it. Yes, you. It's like you have to grope through the woods when you <laughs> when you try to express <laughs> yourself. I mean, you know, classic classic Russian literature is very rich in in that sense, mm -hmm. and it brings a lot of complexity to the thought. But English has another quality, which is very precise and very sharp in expressing the. You know, it's very precise and if you find the right word, it's like it just shines. You know, mm -hmm. and I love English language. I. I I absolutely adore it, but I cannot get rid of the Russian entirely. So it comes in and tries to mess up my thought, and I have to, and I have to then maybe um, look in a translator and find. A, occasionally, it happens. Although I prefer not to have it done, but occasionally it happens that I have to look in the translation into mm -hmm. you know the certain Russian word. Just like I want to say something, something that is like would be a perfect expression of this particular moment of existence, right? And I cannot find the right word in English. The, the funny thing is, because I've encountered this the other way since, for instance, so a couple of the characters in my book have fairly Slavic origins. Oh. There are certain times they slip into a phrase that cannot be expressed in English. Right. And I, like, I tried and I tried to find the English words for it, but the way it came out in Russian or Hebrew even was just, that's how they would think and say it. And there's no way around it. No, yeah. And yeah, that's gonna, that's, a, that, you know, that's, that slows down the process of writing a lot. But mm. I think, I think I came to enjoy it really, because it does broaden my own ability to actually reflect on reality and, you know, make some conclusions about it. I mean, it's, it's an enriching process, but it's a bit 
difficult <laughs> at times. You made a deliberate choice when you came here to not study English in an academic fashion, though. I wouldn't say it was a deliberate choice. I think I, it was. Uh, it's. Uh, it just so happened that I didn't have any time to to take time to do just study just the language. I had to work and you know bring some money in, and then I didn't have money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so, well, the truth be told, I wasn't really very much interested in going to school at the time and just sit and study something. I was, I was really, you know, I was like in the story. It was a story. I was part of the story and I had to leave the story. So part of the story was that I had to somehow learn to express myself decently in this new world, which I mm-hmm. came to as I desired, I guess, all, all the years <laughs> in the, you know, prior to that. And, uh, um, yes, and, but I miss the reading, you know, I miss the reading and I miss the literature part of my life. So how did you feel being in a foreign country and unable to engage in the experience of that? I, for the for first, maybe six months to a year, I felt, um, I was really part of the spectacle or show of some kind. It wasn't quite real. I was just playing a role of some character that arrived somewhere and now she's trying to do something and trying to remember the lines she has to say. And mm-hmm. it was quite disorienting to to degree. And, and um, you know, like you're suspended in the air, you're sort of flying and then you're landing somewhere. So it, it took me about a year to actually land somewhere in my own perception of the world here. And when I finally landed, I realized that I really miss the reading, you know. <laughs> <They wouldn't>... Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I only bought, brought with me like um, two books, two books in Russian. Which ones? There was a Brodsky poetry, okay. Joseph Brodsky poetry, and another one was amazing. It's not, it's not very well known here in the United States. I don't even know if it was translated. It's called Twelve Chairs. It's yes. Oh, you heard about that? I've, I've heard it. I've watched it. There's, a, there's an adaptation years ago with Dom DeLuise, of all people, in it. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and it's a really dark performance because, actually, let's, let's sit on 12 chairs because I think it is endemic of what, how you were describing Russian storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's beauty and poetry to it, but it is severe and dark and heavy at the same time. It is. Why did you bring 12 chairs? Oh, that's my favorite book. The Twelve Chairs is uh, is the novel, and it's um, it uh, it's written by two brothers that are describing that are describing the you know the the part of the Russian uh, history like in in twenties and thirties when there was this transition from um, Tsar and all this mo- mo- Russian monarchy after the revolution, and they were transitioning into the new culture, the new world, so to speak. And it was incredibly funny. The young, the, the, the protagonist, Osta Bender, his name is, he's like incarnation of a trickster archetype, mm-hmm. which is just phenomenal. And I, I loved it, and I laughed every second of it, but at the same time, it's very real and dark. So it's just this this complexity of the story. And I think uh, what I like the most is the, you know, the trickster archetype, which I learned later what it is. I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's what I loved. And I think I felt like that would give me a sense of grounding and hope. If I, you know, if I read it here, I can anticipate it having hard times. Why do you feel the trickster archetype appeals to you? What about that speaks to you? Well, the trickster archetype, Jared, is the... I think is one of the most, like most ancient, really. It's the ancient archetype, very uh, present in the world and very necessary for the healthy balance of human world and natural world. And I feel like being raised in Soviet Union, for instance, and even here in the United States, I'm seeing that the people are really discouraged to incarnate these qualities. You know, you get uh, shamed for being a trickster. You get a lot of negativity around it. So people tend to shy away. However, it does connect you to the sort of a primal dynamics of existence in the world um, since the beginning of the world. And I feel like, gosh, I really need to, to have that more in my life. <laughs> 
I really do. You know, of course, the trickster archetype can be presented negatively, like let's say, you know, politics, for instance, or some, you know, this trade tricks. And By its nature, it introduces two things that are complicated and evoke change. It is transgressive and it requires doubt. Yes, that's a very good description of it, yes. And I, I, I find, having read the beginning of Umbra, I think back to the way you frame things, and there is a deep layer of uncertainty that you pull at and play with, like a cat with a ball of yarn. And we don't get our answers easily, which can be, I imagine, to a certain sense, maddening to the reader, but at the same time, it can be deeply <laughs> intriguing. And I think actually this is a, a great place to turn over to what brought you into the kind of work you write, why you write the way you write. I think we both probably fall under the broader category of magical realism, although you suggested that the weird is probably a better way to frame it in the whole. That's true. I um, When I started the, the story, um, I started writing it not knowing that that will be a story. At the time when I became deeply, deeply fascinated and interested in the Jungian psychology mm-hmm. and his, uh, his, um, his idea of active imagination and the dream work. Around that time, I started uh, practicing those things, the active imagination, and I started having a lot of dreams. And in my work as a psychiatrist, I started paying attention to the dreams that people were bringing in the consulting room, right? Mm -hmm. And all in all, over maybe two or three or four years, I collected a bunch of little uh, descriptions, little scenes and images that were simply just the descriptions of this active imagination trips and the dreams. And after a while, I realized that, look, this, are the, this actually comes up to be a story. Why don't I try to organize it in such a way that it can be readable, that it can become <laughs> a novel? <laughs> I uh... I had a similar experience in undergrad and then grad school where I was mm-hmm. a short story writer like you. And mm-hmm. one day my writing professor of more than a few years sat down and said, there is a book in here and you need to find it. Right. See, isn't that interesting? And all I thought was, no, these are just stories of people that I like to write about. And then he went, yeah, but why do you like to write about them and their life in the now? Right, right. I do want to, before we go too deep into this, give the readers or folks or audience who are familiar with the idea of active imagination or how Jungian archetypes work and how are interpreted in dreams. If you could just give kind of a basic overview of how you would explain these experiences or process to, say, someone who is coming to you as a patient or client. The active imagination is a, is a technique that Jung developed when you are, let's say, you have a certain vague, perhaps, question or a certain vague um, discomfort in you or some kind of emotional starting point, right? Mm-hmm. And then you create for yourself a little bit of an environment, you know, quiet place, uh, can be in a car. That's what I love to do. I would drive somewhere far in the a, in a, in a woods. That was my favorite place in the world, actually, <laughs> in the woods. Mm-hmm. I would go in the woods and I would just be there, be there and have my mind to uh, follow that thread of that emotional initial spark and let it just bring the images it it does require a little bit of practice but it um it's incredibly rewarding and very much interesting uh, a very interesting process so you you just follow that um that thread and let the mind to to conjure the images of certain kind and it can be elaborate it can be simple but somehow at the end of it you end up with a coherent, maybe you can say message, or somehow a coherent presentation of the question you might have had or the um, doubt or any kind of things like that. And it does answer this, but it does not, it's not obvious. That's the, that's the thing I love about it. It's never simple. It's never obvious. Would you say it's, there's, a certain, there's a certain sort of surrender of the self to the journey? Oh, absolutely. You have to suspend your um, ego ideals and you have to just let the unconscious come through and inform you in some way, but you do have to step away. You know, you do. You absolutely have to. It strikes me. I, I want to share this other quick line. In my writing, you say, I like to turn things on their head, shake them up and see what falls out of their secret pockets. 
Coming back to the idea of the trickster, it feels to me like the trickster is the one who invites us to explore those hidden places. There's a temptation to that, but it can be terrifying. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad that you made this connection. I didn't realize that. <laughs> but I'm so happy that you made this connection with the trickster archetype and that particular way of uh, thinking and writing. Yeah, that, that's what tricksters do. Turn things upside down and just shake them and see what comes out. We often hear writers speak of their muse or the things that drive them or force them to move on a certain way. And the, the archetypes of writers themselves can often follow these perceptions that you have to be devoted to suffering or to pain or to angst or some other kind of experience, which I find personally maddening because mm -hmm. why limit yourself to just one and why mm -hmm. suffering of all of them? Right. Do you have these kind of characters like the old king, the old haunt? There's I think part of what characterizes all of them from what you've described so far is that they're hidden away, they're ancient, and they're not fully defined until they're encountered. There's, let me ask you, when you're talking the old haunt, the old king, are classic certain figures like, say, the Firebird or Koshi the Deathless, do those kind of have their own shape or form in this? Do your cultural and historical experiences give kind of a certain flavor or shape to this? Or do you, is this tapping into something else? No, I think it's very much influenced by the the heritage. Like Old Hunt was a really a incarnation of Baba Yaga. You, you heard about Baba Yaga, right? Mm -hmm. And she's a modern Baba Yaga. You know, she speaks of uh, sexual life, and he, she speaks of love and politics and World War Two and all kinds of things like that. But she is at the very heart. She is Baba Yaga. She is an old wood witch that she is she's a trickster oh my god she's she is. awful well, she, trickster. she's also like merlin in the once and future king she does the one who lives time backwards and cannot tell what he sees because people won't understand it the right way exactly wow you got it <laughs> Ah, no, yes, that, that's, that's, that it is. I don't think, though, that the archetype can be ever fully defined or understood. I think we can only relate to it in some way and hopefully relate to it in a healthy way, not let it overwhelm us or to con take control of us. They're, they're almost perhaps like a wind in the sails. They can take you in strange places, but you have to be willing to surrender some level of control to arrive there while not perhaps letting go of all your weariness entirely. Yes, that's that's a very good description of it, Jared. I I see it like that too. Yes, and you have to you have to not fight them sometimes. You have to let you have to relate to them but not fight them. I mean you cannot fight a wind. How can you fight a wind? You know? It's it's so funny. One of my favorite novels of recent times, which is a fantasy novel but doesn't focus on the fantasy of the character instead is Patrick Rothfuss is the name of the wind. And then the titular character, Kvothe, tries to find the name of the wind to control it, only to discover that is the one thing he can't do with it. Huh. I, 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 do, I did see this book, and I think it's in my list to read, hmm. but I haven't read it. What is the Geekly Oddcast? It's a panel show of television... I mean, seriously, where else was I supposed to go and watch Gomez Adams ride a rocket ship on a railroad track? Gaming. And the dice say... 17. Oh my god, 17 is Mystic Quest. And whatever comes to mind. Why does Zod need a starship? Alternating Thursdays on The Geekly Oddcast. Touching back into how and the why we write, there's this way you describe language in terms of the language of love, the language of war, the language of eros versus mm -hmm. the language of, which I suppose, maybe discord. Mm -hmm. But this sense that it's so easy to fall into the one when you're trying to create something and almost to, to fall prey to it, to think this is a book, it has to be a certain way, it has to be designed a certain way, the tale has to be said a certain way and lose mm -hmm. the life of it in that moment. How far along were you in writing Umbra when you had this encounter with your friend who said you were an emanation of hell? <laughs> well, it was actually, um, it wasn't, a, it was not far away. It was not far in. It was <laughs> oh, wow. more or less in the beginning. I mm. just, 
Yeah, I just put together, you know, as I said, those dreams that I, and, and um, imagination scenes I put together and um, I gave her to read like maybe a chapter or two and that's when that happened. And it did throw me back a little. I felt like, oh gosh, should I really do that? I mean, it doesn't look like <laughs> it's, it's very much wanted. <laughs> but then I reflected and I thought, look, if it's somebody is having such a strong response, even if it's a negative response, it means that that text content contains a lot of energy of some mm. kind. I did I share with you uh, one of my advisors her reaction to my works to my first chapter of Rosemary? Tell me, tell okay. me. I've probably spoken about this on the podcast before, or one of them, but when I was teaching, I had to write my thesis, the book at the same time, which is a, a terrible mm -hmm. <laughs> trial in itself. But I kept on rewriting the same chapter, the, pro, the, the first chapter of the book, over and over. And every time I brought it to Gabriel Pina, my advisor at the time, she would point out just how, I think, not neutered, but as you would say, devoid of energy in life. Mm -hmm. There were mm -hmm. words on the page, but they described nothing. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I could feel it. And finally, after maybe the 12th or 13th revision, she sat down and told me she had to go through a bottle of, I think, one kind of liquor or another to survive it. <laughs> it was an unpleasant experience. And I felt hurt. Not that she was trying to hurt me, but as, you know, this is her trying to shock me out of the complacency I was in and just tweaking the words. Mm -hmm. So I finally, I think, as you said, I sat down, I let myself not try to tell the story, but to find it. Mm -hmm. And I described this soldier trying to find his friend coming home to or where he's now and the wife inviting him in for dinner. Mm -hmm. And that just experience of trying to not talk about the war while reliving pieces of it as the meal is served, as the wine is poured. Mm -hmm. So all this is described. I sit down with my advisor that one last time at the end of the semester. And she says, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but, mm -hmm. and all I could think is, oh, what did I screw up this time? <laughs> and she says, I threw up. Oh, <laughs> I'm going, oh, I'm done. I give up. She oh, says, no, Jesus. it's good. It's a good oh, thing. God. I couldn't. It was so evocative and weird and gross, and I was there, and I couldn't keep it in. Wow. And she said, I want you to do more of that. <laughs> right. That's a very strong, visceral response that she's got from your writing. Uh, to be fair, I don't want my readers doing that over the book the entire time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you, in your in this, this notes you have talking about the old haunt and uh, your main character's encounters with her, you said this journey is trying to this journey of surrender was how you discovered that and in, in actuality you were writing about how we try to confront the darker frightening aspects of our of our life and this kind of realization that you can't you can't fight the enemy because the enemy is not outside of you you know that i think that's a very old notion from um many mystical traditions and philosophical traditions but somehow we keep forgetting that <laughs> and we have to remember it over and over again in every individual life and that's how it happened to me that's when i when i i kind of felt like the battle that we wage in the outside world mostly the projections of what is happening internally and when you try to do away with the darkness you, you die you, you're not, you cannot do that. It's, it's, you're so intimately connected to your own dark nature that if you try to get rid of this, you cut yourself off some vital lines of existence that you have to have can be connected with. Otherwise, you cannot leave. You, know, you cannot be fully alive. You cannot create anything. You cannot love anybody. So in that encounter with the old hunt, that's, that's where my protagonist kind of realizes that when she's absolutely exasperated with this character, with the old hunt, and she tries to kill her. She realizes that she's dying herself. She cannot kill her. All she can do is see her. So that's, I think, is one of the messages, sort of, although I don't like word message, but one of the themes in the Umbra is that you have to develop a relationship with the darkness that you can see it, you can actually perceive it, because it's not empty, and it's not all black. There is very rich content in it and it's there for you i want to share what you wrote because it speaks to we're talking here about the idea of otherness which you'll often see in both academic and social papers now in reference to our treatment of immigrants our treatments of other religious groups mm -hmm. in terms of policy both foreign and local but the idea of otherness and how it pertains to as you're describing the shadow the thing that is you but does you do not wish or want to be you or recognize as you 
mm-hmm. and therefore give to someone else to hold on to or be. And it's easier to talk about these things in terms of specific than it is in terms of the abstract. So here's an example you provided. You said you love and are amazed by how our society is still very much afraid of tigers, of dragons, of the big, dark otherness they represent. Mm-hmm. And that, for instance, Jules Verne's Paris from the 20th century is a great example in his time of the things he saw that he foresaw or delved into and imagined could be part of our life that other people were bored and or simultaneously horrified by. Mm-hmm. Why does that work speak to you? The otherness? Not just the otherness, but particularly, say, Verne's Paris in the 20th century, not just the writing of it, but people's encounter or experience of it when it was introduced. Well, I think that 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 excites me because it shows us, it demonstrates to us the power of imagination. You know, we 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 tend to dismiss, especially in the past, the imaginative work as something childish and, you know, like fantasy novels weren't really considered a serious literature and so on. However, however, it's imagination that paves the, the, the way for the future. So, so if you only can imagine dystopia where it's everything is dying and world goes apart, so that's what you're going to leave. But I think it's the imagination that can find a way out of a disaster that we're in. Like it's just that. It's the, it's the faculty of imagination, which is really, I, I admire so much as a writer and as a psychiatrist and as just a human being. It's imagination that will get us out of this. And that's, um, in a Jules Verne, for instance, that book, uh, The Paris in 20th Century, that's where he imagines the current affairs a hundred of years before that happened. And he able to kind of perceive the path that the humanity might take if we, you know, we'll be doing these things that we're doing now. And so that happened. And I think it's a very powerful testament to the power of imagination. And we should all listen to the fantasy writers really (laughs) carefully and really take note of what they're saying. (laughs) Because in the language, hidden in the language and the descriptors might be the things and the experiences we have today. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, you know, the language is, is, has enormous power and imagination expressed in language. It's, it's really magical abilities that we have as humans. We have to really hone it and respect it and develop it. It's, it's so fascinating. If you look to traditions, say, like Zen Buddhism, there is the, the Zen cone, the finger is not the moon. I can point you to where the moon is, but you don't need my finger to know that it is the moon. That said, sometimes it might be helpful for me to suggest or show you where it is or might be. Yeah, I like that. It is that kind of, so there's, it's not simply the, okay, the representation is not the thing it represents, which is amusingly enough, the map is not the territory in terms of True. the theories of contemporary semantics. True. I, this is stuff I studied, so occasionally it creeps back up. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> going back to the writing itself, in this journey of you, and I, I want to bring up, because it almost kind of frames our conversation today, on, you have this phrase, the character arc, and I... I was bemused because you wrote it character arc, A-R-K, as in the vessel that carries one toward an unknown location. And at first I'm going, well, that's a typo. Then I'm thinking, no, is it really? Or is that your subconscious or unconscious correcting, not for not the literal phrasing, but for the literary or for the interpretive phrasing, what you were actually trying to evoke with the phrase? Because what does well, a character arc do? But <laughs> You know, it was a, what, what is known as, a, I guess, Freudian sleep. <laughs> when you meant, mean to say one thing and say another, <laughs> happens quite a lot. I guess I, I meant to be just, you know, our arc as arc. But in, that, in the context that you're describing, it's, it's worth thinking about it, what I really meant to say. Well, you could say that... You know, the arc, the Noah arc is, is a certain kind of structure that takes you from one place to another. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what I meant, the character arc as a... Even, so let's play off the idea of the Noah's arc here. Yeah. In the act of making the arc, he had to give up most of what he knew of his world to shape that. He, owed, he could only serve or save or preserve certain things. And arguments could be made as to what was saved and whether it should have been. But the act itself, you must make a choice. This goes on, this does not. This is what yeah. the is made of. This is what it isn't. So you take with you certain things, but you leave so much behind. Right, right. So you have you have to have the discernment, the quality of discernment of you know taking risk and leaving behind things and cutting off certain things and letting go of certain things. 
as uh, painful, uncomfortable as it might be, but <laughs> yeah, in order in order to float and actually run to dry land somehow, you can you have to let go of lots of things and just make it with bare essentials. Yeah, interesting. Do you think that is reflected in your own journey of writing, Umbra? Oh yeah, I I would say so. Yes, I would say so. I mean, I uh, gosh, when I started. There's not one word in the final version of the book that was there in the beginning almost. <laughs> Thank you. I really, <laughs> I had to let go of a lot of stuff and then bring some new things in, of course. But, but it was quite a lot of letting go there, cutting. I found, though, I don't have a lot of problems cutting out things. Like I know some writers have this sentimental connection to sentences that they create. Mm-hmm. I don't. I tend to do it fairly easily. Just delete it <laughs> and that don't suffer over it very much but i think for me particularly since i learned to write mostly in third person and the book insisted to be in first which was a moment of talk about the noah's ark here fine the boat wants to be made out of stone instead of wood that's still gonna float right but somehow it did and i went okay let's uh let's see where this is going but in learning how to write first i had to discover how both adam and connor spoke in first and yeah, a lot of stuff ends up falling by the side. But for me, because of how I learned words and music at the same time, the, the real journey or discovery there became the real journey or discovery there was one of learning how their thought, their imagination flows and the rhythm and rhyme to that. So then knowing that, it became, I think, to your point, so much easier to know what belongs in the page or what doesn't because it was just a matter of finding the beat again. It is, it is. A lot of, uh, yes, a lot of it is about the rhythm. I agree. When I write, I um, I discover it, and actually that was a feedback from um, the editors as well, that I tend to prioritize rhythm of a meaning. So some of my sentences or passages can have a very beautiful rhythm, but mm-hmm. some of it have not a whole lot of meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, I had to find, and it's true, um, you know, when the characters, when I know the character, that's, you know, that's the inner world, so to speak, and that's how the, the, the words should go. And then I, I have a hard time sacrificing rhythm over the, you know, for the meaning. So I would be just struggling, like, how can I write a word that has the meaning, but doesn't interrupt the rhythm? That's another part of writing that I find challenging. I enjoy it, but I find it challenging. And I guess if I were a native speaker, it would be easier for me by that no <laughs> no it wouldn't be <laughs> no oh god well yes and no and it's i say this both as an academic and as a writer there's research to show that when you are writing in a native like in your native language because when you read words aloud you are speaking them even if you don't auditorily hear them mm-hmm. the muscles move the brain processes in a similar fashion when it's your native language or one that is quite familiar to you it is much easier to catch what would be in proper flow or odd phrasing, stuff like that, because the muscles themselves will seize, the nerves will go, that's not the pattern here. Mm-hmm. With learned languages, it can be harder until they become more natural to you. But right. that said, I do find it fascinating that you turn to Ursula Le Guin, who is infamous and famous for her battle against what is known often as purple prose. Mm-hmm. The words upon words upon words that don't actually mean or go anywhere. <laughs> I, Ursula Le Guin also spoke, uh, wrote a lot on the on the um, theme of rhythm, mm-hmm. and she is, yes, she has she found that balance of preserving the rhythm but not uh, polluting the prose with unnecessary noise. So I, that's something that I I'm trying to learn in my own writing. How do you know it? How do when you know it, how do you? How would you describe that sensation? Because you intr- you open up your book with a character who has no name, who has unusual features, and her first beginnings of this journey are discovering what is true or not true about herself enough to take a shape. Mm-hmm. How how do you know in the writing when you are arriving at that heartbeat, when you're finding, describing it, and when you're veering away? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I think that. It's almost ineffable. It's it's there is really difficult to pinpoint that moment, you know, when it's when it actually happens. But you know, I know it in almost in my body, really. I feel like the certain sense of like 
neurophysiological comfort, I guess you could say, hmm. in, in the brain that happens when you find that rhythm, that like that kind of a tension of being unsatisfied with the text, with the prose, it sort of like melts away. And you find yourself in this, in the wave of you know, words coming in and out and, and just coming out on the page. I don't think I can really put a word to it or describe the moment of it. I can only tell you that I have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of know it when it happens, but I'm not sure how to get there, except that you have to keep trying. It's so funny because that, that description also pertains to things like the numinous, the idea of the divine or the spiritual that you, you can approach, you can approach. And if we're talking math, the parabola nears and nears and goes closer or parabolic, a parabola will near and near and approach zero, but never arrive there. Right. Right. It's, it's weird because you describe in the, in your notes here, this idea that it's kind of a gestational process, but the birth almost never quite happens. Mm -hmm. that the, the idea forms and shapes and grows and emerges as something but it doesn't stop well maybe happens isn't the right word but that it's it's a life you're giving birth to a life because it doesn't stay as it was once it's arrived right right you know that's a very good point and i think that's the hallmark of a truly sort of artistic creation when it doesn't stay the same it keeps evolving and other people as other people get introduced to it and interact with it, mm. it changes. It sort of finds its way into the world and it changes as it go, leads on. I think that's what I admire about you know some of the books that I read. That it's I read it, I don't know, ten years ago, five years ago, and it had a certain impression on me. Five, ten years later, I still carry it inside of me, but it's different. It's changed, and it changed me. I think that's the true hallmark of an, you know, the artistic creation, so to speak. Whose works do you feel inspire you most? I recently, I was um, in in recent years. I um, been um, you know as I've been writing my own story and trying to discover what neighborhood of literature belongs to. I read magic realism. I read fantasy, but I kind of deviated from the, the epic fantasy and more into uh, like John Crowley, Crowley, little big kind of magic realism slash fantasy stories. Mm -hmm. I loved Margaret Atwood, <laughs> uh, the trilogy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mad Adam. Mad Adam trilogy. Yes, yeah. that I loved and I, I keep rereading it just to learn how she masters the how she masters the narration of it it's just it it just very very skillful so i'm learning i'm reading it and i'm rereading it to just learn how she does this tricks she's a trickster <laughs> think to a certain extent writers tend to be yeah they have to right i mean you have to be a trickster to, to tell a story which is funny because if you look at the archetype of storytellers there's certain purposes they serve similar to that of the trickster or you could even say that is a an heart one step on the arc or the path of one that you have if we're going young in archetypes you have the fool or the adventurer who turns into the hunter or the the capable person who turns into the wise old man who becomes the trickster the mm -hmm. mentor the storyteller right who can't relate the experiences in a direct way because they won't listen anyway exactly yeah there, there is a there's a subversive nature of it that i think is very healthy when the when the world becomes too sort of rigid and petrified with these outdated ideas of how things should be, the only thing can, can, that can dissolve it is a trickster. It's very subversive. And the imagination and the fantasy stories that we're reading and writing, that's what it does, I think. I think that's what it's trying to do, you know, the, the archetype coming through us in order to change what is happening outside. I want to kind of roll the conversation as we head toward our ending path here toward the idea of what identifies or differentiates the weird from other types of stories or if not in the purpose or the intent then at least in the experience of it that's a very good question i think that the weird exists on a very far end spectrum of the imagination you know your imagination also have maybe certain limits and certain cultures and people and is largely defined by what is already known and and the weird pushes it far far beyond like to to very it's like a frontier of the um imaginative and 
you know, the things that the stories that I read, the weird uh, category stories, they, they just, they, they talk about things you cannot even, you never thought of, you never imagined even remotely. <laughs> I think in me, it evokes the sense of awe, first of all, hmm. and I have, might feel uneasy or disturbed by it, but I like it. I like to be uneasy and disturbed. <laughs> Not so much the supernatural, but the supernal. Um, what's the difference? So supernatural would be, I think, where a lot of, say, modern fantasy resides. You have your urban fantasies where witches are your next door neighbors. Mm -hmm. You have your classic fantasy where witches might be your next door neighbors, but they are there to take over your country or serve you tea that makes your hip, your hiccups go away. Right. A humorous example of that would be Terry Pratchett, for instance. Mm -hmm. Although he's kind of a dancing between the urban and the fantasy. Humor, I know, definitely characterizes the weird at some point, because as you said, it is, it is subversive. It does question, I think, to a certain extent, who you are and why and what you believe of that. But the supernal is something beyond. It's different from the supernatural in the sense that it is not truly of this world at all. Is it a thing mm -hmm. beyond us that we try to connect with? And that's where, when you said all first, that's mm -hmm. where, again, I thought back to people's experiences, either religious or spiritual or horrifying mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they are suddenly without words. Yes. That this means by which we fundamentally describe and explain our world does not serve us in this moment. Yes. It's just a thought that I'm trying to remember the author's name. And Catherine Hale, she used to be a nun who turned into a scholar for the history of God, history of the devil, evolution, mm -hmm. theological arguments. But there's a phrase she pulls out of, I think it's the Old Testament, where they describe how Certain prophets had to, or certain people had to be treated by having honeycomb pressed to their lips before they could speak the words of heaven. In other words, they could no longer be who, just who they had been or were to bring forth this mm -hmm. word from somewhere else. They had to be changed. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. That's that's wonderful analogy, and I like the way that you describe the the weird. And when you say, when I said awe, oh, and you said renders you mute, I just remembered something that I was pondering on for a while. This notion of two kind of languages that you started to talk a little bit in the beginning. It's the mm -hmm. language of uh, errors and the neurotic language, and the language of errors by some you know, psychoanalyst is described as the language of Adam. And this language of Adam is supposed to render you mute. And that's, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> How contradictory. <laughs> right, right. But that's, you know, it's, it's a very complicated notion. I don't, don't quite get it myself yet. But what you're saying is really makes sense in that, in that way, you know, the language that renders you mute. The idea that silence itself can speak. Yes. Or say more than words. Right. I just hope one day I will achieve that greatness. <laughs> to, to... The day when you can sit under the cherry tree on your bench and tell a story just by the way you look at a certain person on the way. Or oh my God. look at a certain person walking <gasps> by. And they can nod and go, yes, I get that too. Oh, <laughs> that would... <laughs> yes, that would, be, that would be the goal. I, I have a friend who is a neuroscientist who is deeply interested in how we could convey those types of experiences mm -hmm. or immediately or directly. It's always fascinating talking to him because and I, I want to run this conversation by him afterwards to hear his thoughts. But just the whole idea that we fundamentally the art of telling a story is this weird, is this bizarre tension between what is and isn't said, what's left is subtext or uncertain mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. up to the reader or the audience to, mm -hmm. to get. Oh, absolutely. Somebody said that how much we're in, how much what is is influenced by what is not, and so in this Western culture we do pay a lot of attention to what is and not enough attention to what is not, which means empty spaces and silences. And I think that's that's something that needs to be understood as well. You know, how do we pay attention to what is not? And actually that's the ombre is a lot of it is what it is about to 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 express the absence as a form of presence that changes us. I think for the most part only encounter that in moments of grief or loss when we finally begin to understand what is meant by the presence of something that is no longer there or the absence of the presence of a thing that has right. there. I think the grief and loss is a doorway into encounter with these emptinesses. But I think once you are familiar with them, you start seeing them everywhere, the holes, you know, the empty space. 
But the doorway to it often is just grief and loss, yes. And maybe that speaks to your comment earlier about the glorification of suffering mm -hmm. that the writer is supposed to have. <laughs> I'm sure if that's the only way to get to that. If, right, if I don't know. It. Right, maybe that's that's sort of intuitively perceived way to get there. But I agree, it doesn't have to be so dramatic and traumatic. Well, no, that's like using any other drug effectively in that case to kind of slip into that direction sooner mm -hmm. or faster. I know you're a huge fan of Leonard Cohen, who, particularly in his works like Hallelujah, which was a, a tortured thing for him to write. Oh, I didn't know that, huh? There, there's a fascinating So Malcolm Gladwell, he has a podcast called Revisionist History. One of the episodes is dedicated to the development of Hallelujah, but then it also goes into the interpretations and performances of it, like the one done by Jeff Buckley, which is, I think to this day, one of the more haunting performances of it. You've made huh. even more so by his just absolute disappearance one day at a young age. And the other, I don't know if you've ever read, but Rumi, the poet, the Sufi mystic, spends oh, yeah. a great deal of time. Yeah. And I, I can't recite it off my head. I'd have to pull it out. But he opens up, this is one collection I have, he opens it up with the poem, who says these words with my mouth, evoking this idea of being in a world full of drunks who don't know what they're saying or why, and I can't get to where I came from, but I know I will someday. I think it's the hardest thing probably I find to put on the page is nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. That's something to reflect on. How do, how do we as writers create emptiness, create that feeling of nothingness that is still the form of you know of presence yeah i mean i've tried to do it in umbra i don't know how well i've succeeded if anybody will move in that direction you know or anybody who reads it but i think that's what i'm trying to do really at the very basis of bottom of what i'm doing to kind of bring the reader or the, the audience to that doorway to the, to the yeah. threshold yeah where can people find your book or you well, I'm building a website, ybarbello.com, Y-B-A-R-B-E-L-O.com. Um, it's not up and running yet, but um, it, it will be soon. And uh, the book still is not in print. I'm looking, searching for an agent. And if I succeed, then I will provide you with the information about the future of the book and then... We'll take it from there. I, I would love to have you back on when we talk about the next stage or life cycle of the book, where it's going from there. What you're, I, I saw in your notes, you also have other books that have kind of crept into your mind since then. <laughs> yes, yes, it happens. I think that's the difference between thinking or writing a book and realizing you're a writer. Maybe. <laughs> that <you> probably. Can't, <laughs> you can't put the pen down. But probably, yeah. Yeah, it becomes your nature. Mm -hmm. It becomes who you are. Just cannot stop. Before we wrap up for today, is there anything you want to give to the reader as a last thought, a reflection, a thing to take away? I think the the one that I I want to I already talked about it, but I just want to say it again. I want every reader, every person to really start paying attention to the imagination, to what kind of things they dream about. That's so, so important. And I think if we were we were all doing that regularly, we would live in a much better world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a little idealistic, but that's true. I think the thing we might perceive or talk about writers and how they relish the suffering so much, but what I find to be the most rewarding part is just the, the sheer joy of discovering the story and relating it to someone else. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. There are a few things like it. I, I agree with that, Jared. That's... That's the, the joy of being a creator, writer, creator. A creator in general, I think. Of yeah, creator in general. Anything you take from your imagination and bring to life. Yes. Julia, it was a wonder talking to you today. I look forward to our next conversation. Jared, I was so delighted. Thank you for inviting me, and I will be very happy to meet with you again anytime. Absolutely. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hearmediaries. That's with a Y. For a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. 
Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at my name, dot my last, and you need tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.